Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. From October 31st to November 13th, the United Nations Climate Change Conference was held in Glasgow, Scotland. The 26th Conference of the Parties, known simply as COP26, brought together representatives and world leaders from almost 200 countries. In the lead up to the conference, organizers described it as the last best hope to save the planet. Indeed, the state of the planet is urgent amid climate change and environmental devastation. According to the World Health Organization, climate change is the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century, and land temperatures have increased about twice as fast as the global average. And every year, approximately 75 billion tons of fertile soil is lost to land degradation. The livelihoods of more than 1 billion people in about 100 countries are under threat. Our planet is losing Arctic sea ice at a rate of almost 13% per decade. Higher temperatures are also creating more intense storms and other extreme weather events. Indigenous peoples and Global South nations have not only been bearing the brunt of environmental devastation, they have also been leading the movement against it. On Saturday, November 13th, diplomats from close to 200 countries struck a major agreement aimed at increasing efforts to fight climate change by calling on governments to return the following year in 2022 with stronger plans to curb their planet warming emissions. However, many protesters and critics and the environmental movement for the most part uh, say that COP26, well, it was more of a failure than a success. They point out that the conference is being, was dictated by the very same governments and corporations that are largely responsible for environmental devastation to begin with. Furthermore, many of the solutions that are being floated still operate within the capitalist free market system, which many say um, is antithetical to the environment and life itself. Today, we bring you audio from a recent webinar on the climate crisis hosted by the California Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. The webinar speakers help us better understand the nature of this crisis while providing critical insight into ways indigenous communities and people of color are especially impacted. It was held on Sunday, November 14th, 2021, uh, that followed the COP26 conference. So during today's show, you will hear from Tom Goldtooth, chair of the Indigenous Environmental Network, William Barber III, the son of a Reverend Barber, who is one of the joint coordinators of the Poor People's Campaign. William Barber III is with the Climate Reality Project. Also, we'll hear from Jacqueline Patterson, chair of the Chisholm Legacy Project, and from Josiah Edwards with the Sunrise Movement. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, 
we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The House is expected to vote on a resolution to censure Arizona Republican Paul Gosar today for tweeting an animated video that depicted him slashing New York Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the neck with a sword. Ahead of the planned vote, Democratic lawmakers said Gosar's actions amounted to threatening another member's life. They called the video Beyond the Pale. Jim McGovern chairs the House Rules Committee, which took up the issue last night. On his official government account, Congressman Gosar posted a video depicting himself stabbing a colleague, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. I heard a lot of things uh, from Congressman um, Gosar since the video was posted, but uh, one thing I haven't heard was I'm sorry, and I did something that truly was wrong and awful and reprehensible. McGovern also criticized Republicans for what he called their public silence and inaction. But the ranking Republican on the committee, Tom Cole, said Gosar had explained the video was symbolic of a battle against unauthorized immigration and not meant to be threatening. He said that should be the end of the story. Today, Representative Gosar appeared at the Republican conference meeting and explained the video in question. He also reiterated that he does not condone violence, does not endorse violence, and did not intend his video to be viewed as an endorsement of violence. As far as I'm concerned, I think that should have been the end of the matter. Though his initial action may have been inappropriate, he immediately took action to rectify his lapse of judgment and to make amends. Gosar may also be stripped of his committee assignments. Ocasio-Cortez said Gosar has not apologized to her and said in a perfect world he would be expelled. President Biden travels to Detroit today as part of the Democratic campaign to promote the recently signed $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law. Yesterday, he was in New Hampshire. Meantime, debate on the companion Build Back Better legislation could begin in the House today with a possible vote by Saturday. Christina Honested reports. President Joe Biden traveled to New Hampshire to promote the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and what it means to working people in the live free or die state. Here in New Hampshire, that means replacing about one third of the transit vehicles, buses and the like that are past their useful life. And this means jobs, jobs for folks making these upgrades. He touted phase two of his agenda, Build Back Better. The Congressional Budget Office is expected to release its fiscal analysis of Build Back Better by Friday. The House could then vote on it Saturday, if that happens. Then it'll go to the Senate, where Senate leader Democrat Chuck Schumer says his chamber will vote on it by Christmas. I'm Christina Onestead. The Biden administration is making billions of dollars available to drug makers to scale up domestic production of COVID-19 vaccines in the hopes of building capacity to produce an additional $1 billion shots per year to share globally. That falls short of the demand by Global South Nations and the World Health Organization that the pharmaceutical companies release their vaccine patents for wider production elsewhere in the world. 
The defense will begin its case in the murder trial of three white men for the killing of black jogger Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. Prosecutors rested their case after eight days of testimony. Father and son Greg and Travis McMichael armed themselves and pursued Arbery in a pickup truck after spotting him jogging past their home in February 2020. A neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, joined the chase and took cell phone video of Travis McMichael shooting Arbery. Prosecutor Linda Donskoski asked medical examiner Dr. Edmund Donahue about the shotgun blast that punched a gaping hole in Arbery's chest and unleashed massive bleeding. So the gunshot wound to this torso, was that a fatal gunshot wound? If he had never gotten this one under the arm, would that one in the middle of his torso have killed him? Yes. Was there anything EMS or uh, the officers could have done on the scene to save his life from the torso shot? Well, they, they could put a, a, an occlusive dressing on the, the large defect, but you would still have the exit defects in the back of the chest. Okay. And, and, and they couldn't do anything about the bleeding as long as the heart was beating. So would he have just, in other words, is there anything they could have done on scene to save his life? No. Donahue said Arbery was hit by two of the three shotgun blasts Travis McMichael fired at him. McMichael has said he fired in self-defense after struggling with Arbery. Jurors in the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse will return today for a second day of deliberations. The case went to the jury after Judge Bruce Schrader, in an unusual move, allowed Rittenhouse himself to play a minor role in selecting the final panel of 12 who will decide his fate. Rittenhouse reached into a raffle drum and drew numbered slips that determined which of the 18 jurors who sat through the case would deliberate and which ones would be the alternates. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. And now we will hear uh, audio from the California Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, their webinar on the climate crisis. The webinar was held following the COP26 conference in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, during today's show, you will hear Tom Goldtooth, chair of the Indigenous Environmental Network, William Barber III with the Climate Reality Project, Jacqueline Patterson, chair of the Chisholm Legacy Project, and Josiah Edwards with the movement from the youth, with the Sunrise Movement. Let's hear from them now. So I just got back from Glasgow. Um... So hello everyone, yat eh everyone, how medakia pi in our Dene Navajo and Dakota ways greeting you. Um, oh, it's good to be back. Um, there's so many things I could talk about, uh, but I want to be respectful of uh, the time for all the other speakers. Um, and uh, definitely, I have a message to. To, 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 to talk to the listeners about. Um, and uh, wow, what can I say? Uh, this was a very uh, critical meeting. Uh, and it, it's, it, it was the 26th uh, uh, year of the Conference of the Parties. And Conference of the Parties means the governments of the world that are participating in this UN process to negotiate the survival of our planet. Eh? Um, I remember John Shadell years ago, he said, you know, 
Mother Earth's going to be okay. You know, Mother Earth's going to take care of herself in any way that she needs to, you know. And, uh, and the pitiful ones really are us human beings, uh, you know, insects, uh, ants, and birds. And, you know, most animals are going to be able to make it. And, but, uh, but us, you know, we're the ones that are going to have hard times. And, uh, and I really do believe that. Uh, and um, I must say that with, uh, you know, when I, when I went over to Glasgow, there's many different uh, side events and presentations and workshops uh, that were being held that uh, we scheduled, uh, uh, you know, our delegation to speak at. We took 18 Native people here from, from Alaska and lower 48 from the U.S. here. And uh, we had our sister organization, the Indigenous Climate Action uh, uh, Network, and we also brought some uh, relatives from from uh, Brazil and uh, Ecuador. Uh, and it was really it was really powerful as far as what the voices of our people were talking about. We had a couple uh, folks from our front lines. Uh, uh, our grandma Mary Lyon was with us. Uh, and she's from up here in northern Minnesota. She's Anishinaabe. She's one of the traditional knowledge holders. And she was with us as well. She's one of the water protectors on line three, Enbridge line three. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that, uh, that I spoke about as well, as well as my brother, uh, Chief Ninawa Hunakwai uh, from the Acre, Brazil, is that, uh, you know, we were there uh, with the authority of our spiritual elders. And, and uh, I remember Chief Ninawa last a week and a half ago said to a large gathering of people and, and said that, you know, the world leaders don't have a, they don't have a spiritual foundation. They're, they're really like children and they're dealing with negotiations that they have no understanding of. And we saw that. Um, and, um, some of you may have heard, uh, you know, the message that we made as a, as an indigenous environmental network at the conclusion. But you know, after all these years of these uh, UN negotiations, the 26th year, uh, this COP conference, the party uh, 26, uh, really was delivered a disastrous outcome. Uh, I, I like to say something you know, more positive other than I, I do have hope, though, we can talk about that later. But, uh, you know, the meeting was supposed to end on Friday afternoon, but, uh, but the, it overflowed into the night and, and, and finally concluded the next day, this past Saturday. And uh, those of us that were there uh, uh, were talking about there was really some power powerful politics going on, corporations, we call it the conference of the polluters. Uh, a lot of the uh, petroleum fossil fuel industries out in the hallways. Uh, and uh, there's certain agendas that they wanted. This is a trade, this is a, a trade negotiation. It's not really has, it doesn't have anything to do with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels is the elephant in the room that no one wants to really deal with. Uh, we know that the sky, the, the atmosphere is like a bathtub that is overflowing with too much carbon. 
Mother Earth can't absorb that. Uh, and uh, a large, a lot of their large NGOs know that, uh, financial institutions, uh, uh, fossil fuel industry know that, big government knows that, they try to hide it though. Uh, so there's a lot of false solutions. Um, and uh, that's something that we were trying to elevate in our delegation that we don't need no more false solutions such as uh, carbon markets, carbon offsets, and we can get into that later, uh, geoengineering, techno fixes, uh, and that's just uh, allows the greenwashing of, uh, of the fossil fuel corporations to continue to extract uh, and, and uh, burn the combustion process of fossil fuels, which contributes to greenhouse gases. Uh, and uh, so there was an agenda uh, out of this uh, conference of the party to pass certain uh, significant articles of the Paris Agreement of 2015. Eh? 2015 was uh, has a lot of articles that uh, are part of the home, the rulemaking of implementing the Paris Agreement. And one of those was Article 6. And uh, we were working with our indigenous delegation, North and South. Uh, around trying to create some political will from the small island states and some of the developing countries who are very concerned as well about false solutions, but they just did not have the power with the big uh, industrialized northern countries. Uh, Article 6 passed and basically Article 6 was, uh, was a carbon marking, carb carbon offset uh, initiative that uh, will end up uh, you know, uh, creating uh, a process for allowing fossil fuel companies to continue to pollute. And from our analysis with the science as well, is that uh, there's no chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 Celsius. Uh, I like to feel that somewhere in that analysis that it's wrong, but already, you know, it, it doesn't look good. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot to be said, but I think part of our organizing strategy is that we need to continue to build uh, grassroots movement uh, here in the United States, Canada, but also globally. There was a lot of, of, uh, of pressure coming from civil society, from the People Summit outside in the streets in Glasgow that understand what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of politics on the inside, exchange of money. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, the big issues was, uh, um, you know, the push for making a transition away from fossil fuel economy. And uh, the coal issue was a big issue, coal. And uh, in the European Union, they did not... Uh, achieve what they were hoping to bring to the COP, and that was Germany to make some stronger commitments on reducing the, their dependency on coal, uh, as well as in the US. Uh, Biden wasn't able to bring to the COP some of those strong provisions that he, he, he based his uh, election on uh, was to cut back on fossil fuels um, and make this transition that, that we're all pushing. I just want to say I'm so inspired by the fight, the fierceness, the commitment that each and every one of you are joining on this call as we talk about this urgent crisis of the climate crisis. 
you know, in 1963, Dr. King spoke of this urgency of now. 68 years later, when we talk about 2021, his words ring true with renewed vigor, our own fierce urgency of now. When we think about every young person whose future hangs in the balance regarding what we do to solve this climate crisis, there's a fierce urgency of now. We think about every elder, every veteran, every seasoned activist who wonders if they did enough to stymie this crisis. There's a fierce urgency of now. And then when we think about every community, indigenous, black, poor, rural, coastal, whose very existence rests on how this crisis will evolve, there's a fierce urgency of now. You know, the climate crisis is the existential crisis of our time, hands down. But it is made worse by the twin crises of poverty and democracy. What do I mean? When we look at the poverty rates, 140 million poor people in the United States alone, an additional 119 to 124 million people pushed into extreme poverty in 2020 associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. And on top of that, an additional 132 million people potentially pushed into extreme poverty by 2030 with an unaddressed climate crisis. That's an urgency of now. UN Chief Antonio Guterres described current poverty levels as a moral indictment on our time, citing the culmination of major challenges, including the pandemic, including global conflict, and including climate change. We saw for the first time in two decades, globally, the rise in extreme poverty. It's made worse by climate change. Talk about the crisis of our democracy, where here in the United States, 2016 was the first presidential election we had without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. Did anything happen in 2016? That's a rhetorical question. I do that everywhere I go. Did anything happen in 2016? Talk about right now, as we're looking at the passage of the infrastructure bill, uh, critical elections, critical appointments to the federal courts, attacks on the right to vote, tax on access to the ballot, attempts to dissuade populations from voting through longer voting lines, voter times, removal of, 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 of polling places. It's an urgency, it's a fierce urgency of now. And recognize that the only way that we get to robust action on the climate crisis, on the poverty crisis, on the five ills as have been laid out by the Poor People's Campaign is by having unimpeded access to the ballot. But this attack on democracy is not just something happening here in the United States. Since 2017, democracy faced its most serious crises globally we saw a reduction in 
guarantees of free and fair elections. We saw a reduction of the rights of communities of color. We saw a reduction of freedom of the press and the rule of law under attack around the world. 71 countries suffered net declines in political rights and civil liberties. Only 35 registering gains. This marked the 12th consecutive year of decline in global freedom. U.S. retreated from its traditional world in its, as an imperfect champion of democracy, saw an accelerating decline in American political rights and civil liberties. And over the period since this decline happened, beginning in 2006, 113 countries have seen a net decline and only 62 have experienced a net improvement. It's a crisis, it's an urgency of now. And I talk about the crisis of poverty, talk about the crisis of democracy, talk about the crisis of climate, because when we look at where we are as a current movement, this forms a parameter a web of impact in which we find ourselves and must engage. This forms that reminder of the inescapable web of mutuality that King talked about in which we find ourselves and must engage. We think about the impact of COVID, that global moment of collective suffering in many ways, as terrible as that was, that was just a precursor of the impact that we will see for communities, for nations across the globe with an unaddressed climate crisis. You know, there was a recent takeaway from the international uh, uh, IPCC report from the UN to talk about uh, the climate change. There were five key takeaways. The first, Climate change is indisputably human caused. The report got straight to the point and said that at the beginning, it is unequivocal that human influence has wor worsened the atmosphere, ocean and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred as a result of human activity. What has that activity looked like? It's decades of environmental injustice. It's decades of a social dependence on fossil fuel infrastructure. It's decades of polluting our communities, our people, polluting Mother Earth to meet our energy needs. It's decades of having communities who have been the most vulnerable be targeted for this polluting infrastructure, suffer for generations of health impacts, suffer for generations of family poverty by being locked into extractive economies, suffer and not contribute the most to this crisis because we know that poor communities, environmental justice communities, communities of colors who have been in the wake of these facilities consume less energy per capita than more affluent households. What does that mean? The same communities that have for generations have borne the brunt of our dependence on fossil fuel infrastructure and who have contributed the least to the demand for that infrastructure now viciously find themselves on the front lines 
of a climate crisis where they're being hit first and worst. That's the urgency of now. Number two, report from key, key takeaway from the IPCC report was that 2010 to 2020 was the hottest decade in 125,000 years. What does that mean? Ever since the early 1980s, global temperatures were initially being tracked. There's been a steady shift to the warmer end of the spectrum, global temperatures that has corresponded with the steady emission of greenhouse gases, which has been directly related to anthropogenic industrial activity. And from this, we see all kinds of consequences. We see extreme weather, increased hurricanes. We see heat waves in places that we've never seen. We've seen flooding on unprecedented levels. We see uh, winter storms in places like Texas that have never seen these temperatures. We see disruptions of our ecosystems, disruptions of the ocean, disruption of the, uh, the Gulf Stream and the jet stream, the systems that our planet depend to regulate itself. This pollution, this crisis has real consequence for planet and for people. We see when heat waves hit disproportionate impacts of who actually suffers, who dies from those heat waves, because we know through studies of environmental injustice that people of color, the elderly, and the extremely young are more susceptible to those fluctuations in temperatures. We see as a result of these rising temperatures effects on the ability to provide food for communities who are already suffering from food access and hunger. We know that for every one degree C in warming in global temperature, there are significant yield declines in corn, wheat, soy, The, the, the crops that make up two thirds of human caloric diet across the nation, across the world. We see this. Number three, takeaway from the IPCC report that certain changes we've already seen at this moment are irreversible. Even if we we're able to make emissions drop to zero tomorrow. There are certain effects of the climate change crisis being felt right now among frontline communities that are here to stay. When we talk about those extreme weather events like the flooding, like the wildfires, like the drought and the mudslides that have increased in recent years, attempts to lower emissions are being done with the hope to limit the impact to the current levels of devastation, the current levels of increased extreme weather, the current levels of hurricane impact and flooding. So when we think about the devastation that's being happening now, already, 
it makes us realize we do not have time to waste on this crisis. The current impact is already devastating. Mother Earth and communities across the globe cannot wait on action and see that devastation get increased much more. Number four takeaway, greenhouse gas emissions, leading cause of climate change. There was some debate left on where the biggest contributors to the climate crisis were coming from. The report really issued a scathing outlook, identifying greenhouse gas emissions as the main culprit. Where are the, some of the sources of those emissions? Our energy sector, of course, one of the main contributors. Our transportation sector, of course. Our agricultural sectors, but also some lesser known sectors. Deforestation was a major contributor. The loss of green space through development and construction was a major contributor. The heating and rapid acidification of the ocean as a result was a major contributor. The melting of our ice caps, which corresponds to greater levels of flooding was a major contributor. But there was no doubt that greenhouse gas emissions were the leading cause of this crisis. Now, why is that so important? Because many times when we thought about in the discourse around solutions, too often there have been false solutions put forth that look at natural gas pipelines as bridge fuels, that look at cementing biogas as a bridge fuel, that at the very moment where we should be seeing a cessation in the emission of greenhouse gases, there are actually conversations where solutions are being put forth to increase those greenhouse gases. It's just a different form. It may not be carbon dioxide, it may be methane, but still a greenhouse gas with sometimes even greater warming impact. That is so critical for us to know because we must challenge, we must challenge this sense of false solutions. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we'll continue our special on the climate crisis, um, an event uh, put on by the California Poor People's Campaign. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. The United Nations Climate Summit in Glasgow has come to a disconcerting close against a backdrop of false solutions aimed at prolonging business as usual amidst an intensifying climate crisis. The UN focused on promoting the privatization of nature at COP26 through schemes such as net zero emissions, carbon markets, and nature-based solutions. These schemes threaten forests, indigenous communities, and endangered species including elephants and whales for carbon markets. According to Ivan Yanez of Acción Ecológica of Ecuador, whale offsets are the epitome of the false solutions being promoted here in Glasgow at the United Nations Climate Change Summit. This is privatization of nature at its most absurd. We are closer than ever to climate tipping points that require a fundamental systemic transformation. 
not false solutions that will escalate the climate crisis, environmental destruction, and economic inequality. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. You can check us out on our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us and like us there as well. Our handle on Twitter and Instagram at SoTrueRadio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the great state of Washington. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Australia. Now, we return to our special on the climate crisis uh, featuring an event hosted by the Policy and Education Working Group of the California Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. I am calling actually from uh, the airport, also coming from Glasgow and the UN climate talks, and also with a bit of a travel mishap that has me calling from a uh, departure lounge here at Atlanta airport. So, um, but it's such a joy to be here with you all. Um, I, and I, when I say I'm in Atlanta, it's the unceded territory of the Muscogee um, um, nation. So. So I'll just start by saying that I was uh, born and raised on the south side of Chicago. My mom came up um, to Chicago through the, the Great Migration um, from a tiny unincorporated area of Mississippi called Dublin. And my first trip out of the COVID-19 lockdown was in October of last year, and I drove down to Dublin. My mom passed away in 2013, and I decided I wanted to drive down there and really visit the community that my mom was born in and really pay homage to the path that she and so many others took. I, I walked in the cotton fields in her community and saw the huge kind of mechanized tractors that were harvesting the cotton. And I bent down myself and picked a piece of cotton and held it in my hand and thought about the enslaved labor that was used to reap that cotton and the essential work being done by, by the people who, who reap that cotton, but who were, who were, who were the work was essential, but the people were considered to be disposable. And I really thought of that also in the context of COVID-19 as well, where there are people whose work is essential, but yet they themselves are, are, are not honored as the essential people that they are in our, in our economy and in our world. 
Uh, my dad came to Chicago as an immigrant from Jamaica seeking opportunity in the very nation that was instrumental in stripping his homeland of the opportunity to be self-sufficient. Um, earlier this year, I was asked to speak at the Ecumenical Advocacy Day's annual meeting on the intersection of domestic and foreign policy in the context of earth rights and climate change. And I started by sharing an excerpt from the film Life and Debt, which I definitely encourage folks to, to watch if you ever have the chance. The film is set in Jamaica and it tells the story that is illustrative of the path of imperialism in US domestic and foreign policy and the practices that it, and, it built, and the practices that we engage in. And it builds on the historical text that I would recommend like how Europe underdeveloped Africa and others that really tell that story. And so all of that kind of path that we've been on in terms of uh, the founding of this place that we now call the United States has led us to where we are in terms of this being on this collision course with catastrophic climate change. Um, in the voices of the people in that video and beyond, we get a snapshot of the impacts of U.S. pursuit in amassing wealth and power and creating dependencies very systemically and deliberatively, um, systematizing imperialism through trade policies and structural adjustment programs. As we consider the path that we need to set ourselves on to restore the earth and her people, we must remember that our ecosystem was divinely designed, The earth systems are structured to be regenerative and to provide all that we need with abundance. The sun, the wind, or ocean waves, geothermal sources provide the energy that we need to power our nation. The earth as well as the earth as well has seeds that have lasted for a millennia. Um, they provide all the food that we need. The earth is two thirds water. So we have what we need to not only survive, but to thrive. And whether it's the bee colonies or the ant colonies, the zebra dazzles, I was, interested to hear that zebra, groups of zebra are called dazzles anyway, or the lion prides. Most of the creatures on earth know that cooperation is the key to survival and well-being. There's only humanity and the dominant cultures of industrialized nation that have managed to kind of muck up the plan of, what, of how the ecosystem was designed. On this path, we have to dismantle the colonization of the indigenous lands and the very principles and practices that form the making of what has now become the United States of America. This land went from being colonized um, with the stolen lands, identity, and resources, and, tra and transformed into being a colonizer by the thieves who branded themselves as the founding fathers. Contrary to this dominant narrative around religious freedom, they did they they did this with while advancing a false scarcity narrative that in order for the settlers to be well, they have to murder, displace, and enslave others. And these practices have persisted and have been institutionalized in our policies. So our our now we have a nation that's built on these principles of, of wealth, of enclosure, of wealth and power, of materialism, of greed, of extraction, of exploitation, of domination. From the Morrill and Homestead Acts that provided resources to white landowners not, not, that weren't afforded to black landowners, to redlining, to gentrification, and other forms of displacement perpetuated the black land loss and extreme wealth differentials. From Citizens United to voter suppression that strips any notion of a democracy and puts entities like polluters in the driver's seat to a capitalist economy which is predicated on a formula that institutionalizes winners and losers consisting consistently putting BIPOC people on the losing end of this economic equation all of this puts us again squarely on this path to catastrophic climate change and would set us up 
for where we were, even in terms of how the pattern of impact went with COVID-19, not only in our nation, but across the world and the, and the disparity in resources of who has access and who doesn't. Cancer clusters, asthma clusters are the order of the day in, in our communities, BIPOC communities, low-income um, um, white American communities. People having their electricity turned off for non-payment for a couple of $60 pills while the CEOs of these companies are, are who are flipping the switch make an average of $9.8 million in compensation every year. And the profits go to lining the pockets of the already wealthy while also going to lobbying to fight against not only clean air and clean, clean um, energy, but also goes to groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, um, and there, the, and so they through groups like Alec, these profits go to push forward on voter suppression, school privatization, water privatization, and prison privatization. As we even look at, at through a gender justice lens, we have to recognize the differential impact and the differential leadership of BIPOC women. We have the differential impact with everything from the, the endocrine disruptors and the pollution that comes out of these smokestacks to the fact that in the context of the disasters that William talked about, we have the spikes in violence against women that happen in those contexts. We have along the, the pipe, the oil and gas pipelines, the missing and the proliferation of missing and murdered indigenous women. Someone mentioned in the chat about um, uranium mining. I was in, speaking of indigenous women, I was in Cayenta, Arizona, where we were, it was at the founding meeting of uh, what is now the Climate Justice Alliance. And, um, and I was struck and took a picture of this uh, uranium mining clinic. Like it was a climate, it was a clinic for uranium mine workers. Like the very fact that you have a clinic that's dedicated to the workers in the uranium mines, that's another, again, an institutionalizing the sacrifice of people, really seeing those people as disposable workers. Because yes, you're, you're setting up a you're setting up a clinic for them, but you're assuming that people are going to be sickened by something that's not necessary for our, our energy landscape. So these are the kinds of um, situations that we find ourselves in. As Tom said, we came from the COP26. Um, and going into that meeting, I wrote an article called Message to COP26 Negotiators. Capitalism never really worked out for the earth or for BIPOC communities. And it picked up on some of the same themes I covered in another article I wrote earlier this year, right after the election or the uh, inauguration. Dear President Biden, what not to do on climate? So our time in Glasgow really reinforced what we what we know about a global geopolitical system of maintaining the status quo without concern for global South nations and BIPOC people pushing for false and damaging solutions from biofuels to biomass to nuclear to natural gas to geoengineering to carbon markets. This is all part of a suite of interconnected policies that continue to dominate and oppress globally from trade policies prohibiting manufacturing and other restrictions to aid tied to patronage of US companies, even when it's a death sentence as we saw with the AIDS crisis where the money had to go towards purchasing antiviral drugs that were manufactured in the US over generic drugs, which were literally 10 times or more less expensive, yet equally effective, while they stacked graves at 12 and six feet under in Sub-Saharan Africa, because it, the, the graves, the, the, the cemeteries didn't have enough space for the rate of people who were dying. So they literally had to bury people both 12 feet under and six feet under to have the space. 
big, big agricultural groups like Monsanto creating Terminator seeds going against the very laws of nature, while farmers in India are committing suicide because of the ruination of their farms. World Bank and IMS structural adjustment programs impacting basic services and the commons wherein children can't even go to school due to hefty education fees and resulting in such situations such as the fact that there are more Malawian nurses in the United Kingdom than there are in the entirety of the country of Malawi. So we perpetuate these situations through a combination of finance policies, militarism, and beyond. The U.S. is 4% of the global population and 25% of the emissions um, that drive climate change. But yet, the, the, but that doesn't even account for the U.S. exports and the responsibility we bear for the emissions in places like China, which is, a, you know, which is one of the bigger pollute, um, polluters, but it's because of our demand for, for the goods because of our excessive consumerism. So we're demanding the goods that they produce. And so while we have these... Thank you. Our policies and practices have disabled other nations from being able to build the capacity for regenerative design, energy efficiency, and clean energy, while we build their dependency on our, our exported coal and liquefied natural gas. We have places like Mpumalanga in South Africa, where coal mining makes it the most polluted place in the world. And yet we refuse to support climate finance so that the nations can adapt to climate change. And finally, even as our actions drive people from their lands, we have punitive immigration policies where people come seeking refuge and we greet people with state-sponsored officials on horseback corralling people with reins being used as whips or we put children in cages. In the words of Kenyan-born Somali poet Warshan Chire, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. And so in Glasgow, we met with the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance and other diaspora groups to really launch, uh, continue the, what we launched in 2015, this initiative of the Global Afro-Descendant Climate Justice Collaborative, through which we'll organize as Black people, but also link arms with our other folks in the movement, like your, your, the folks on this call. So looking forward to continuing to work with you all, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to provide these brief remarks. Um, hi, everybody. Um, like Ward said, my name is Josiah Edwards. I'm a member of Sunrise Movement, which is a movement of young people dedicated to stopping climate change and creating millions of good jobs in the process. Um, I'm 21 years old. I come from Los Angeles. And as the climate crisis rages, wildfires in California, hurricanes in the Gulf South and on the eastern seaboard, cold snaps from Texas to Minnesota, it is very clear that we have no choice but to act and the need to act now. Our movement was born of a small group of young people that exploded into thousands. And our movement's founders could have never imagined that it would be like that. Um, and that's because we worked to grow our power. We put ourselves on the map over the course of the past five years by taking action in Nancy Pelosi's office when she became Speaker of the House. And then following that, when we confronted Senator Dianne Feinstein from California, who frankly disrespected young people by saying that she didn't believe or wrote her own version of the Green New Deal that actually wouldn't confront the climate crisis. When we grew our power and put ourselves on the map, we continued to elect Green New Deal champions like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, who you might know as folks who held the line in this recent fight for the reconciliation package. We won the inclusion of our priority legislation in the rec reconciliation package, the Civilian Climate Corps, and which is really our biggest win, 
is that we polarized the public and popularized the Green New Deal. Now let's talk a little bit about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is an intersectional document. We have to contextualize this fight because, you know, in Sunrise, we call this the People's Alignment, but we're not the first to give it that name. And we won't, or a name, and we won't be the last. The, the Poor People's Campaign understands this, and it's in the very name. Um, Dr. King understood this in the form of uh, the beloved community. That is that this fight is an intersectional fight. Climate justice cannot be achieved without racial justice or economic justice or housing justice or gender justice. It can't be achieved without justice. So we're in the fight for it all. <laughs> People often criticize us because we don't stay in our lane. We don't focus on environmentalism, on conservation, on saving and protecting wildlife. We're for all of that and more because we understand that it's the practices, the extractive practices of racialized capitalism that brought us to this point in the first place. And that's what we're really fighting against. And so we take those efforts and emphasize them in our current fight today. Now, what is that current fight? I already referred to it a few times. It's the Build Back Better Act and the Exxon deal or the reconciliation package of the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, over the course of the, that y'all have certainly heard a lot about over the course of the past year. Now in our fight to win the Civilian Climate Corps and begin the decade of the Green New Deal, we are very near the passage of the largest investment in climate action in American history. Our movement mobilized over the course of the past year to really force our legislators to face the moral choice between the futures of young people, frontline communities, the futures of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and the future of our planet. We won over the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and held sidewalk occupations of California Senator Dianne Feinstein's Los Angeles office and of Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's Phoenix office. We blockaded all 10 entrances to the White House, had trekkers march two, over 200 miles from Paradise, California to San Francisco, and over 400 miles in the Gulf South from New Orleans to Houston. Just recently, we had five brave sunrisers go on a hunger strike for two weeks to emphasize the stakes of the need for the Build Back Better Act. Standing in solidarity with the New York taxi drivers who went on hunger strike for just and equitable working conditions and better pay. And then we mobilized and confronted Joe Maserati Mansion, who nearly ran over several teens and 20-somethings because he thought that it was more important for him to get out driving in his Maserati than to listen to the voices of the future. We told him exactly what we believed, which is that we want to live. And that's the plain truth. We just wanna live. I grew up in a neighborhood laden with environmental burdens. My father has asthma, my brother has asthma, I had childhood asthma. I went to high school less than two and a half miles from the largest refinery on the West Coast. These, our, our health was put at risk because the fossil fuel industry believed it was okay to do business in our backyards, that our lives, our futures, our homes were sacrificial, expendable. That's no longer tenable. The status quo has to change. And if it doesn't, then the futures of everybody, of me and my community, of you and your community, of this country, of this planet, Our futures are over. So I emphasize again, we want to live and we will continue to fight for as long as we can, as hard as we need to, to build power so that we can win. We have no other option and no other choice.
So I hope that everybody here stands alongside us as we continue this fight to achieve that which is just and equitable for our collective futures, for our communities, for us. We don't just want to live, we deserve to live. We're out of time, but I'd like to thank all of the speakers speak, uh, featured in today's show. I'd like to thank the California Poor People's Campaign for giving us permission to use this audio. And I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, in particular, Ramiro Funes, our assistant producer, who is also today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you'll remember to please stay safe.